Welcome once again from Robert Nowers, CPCM, CPPO, and former professor of contract management. Today we're going to talk about contract types or pricing arrangements and why they're important to a new contract specialist, somebody learning contracting. If you want to be the best that you can be, you need to understand everything. If you want to be the best contracting person in government, which is what I wanted, you need to understand all various types, pricing arrangements. We call those contract types. There is an array of contract types from high risk to very low risk and those generally start out with firm fixed price. We call FFP, firm fixed price, because there, there's very little risk involved. Vendors, contractors know what it takes to do a job, to build a building, to provide services at a certain level. There's generally little to no risk, and thus they can offer you a firm fixed price, no risk. There are a number of different elements about these different contract pricing arrangements. But as we move further and further away from contracts that would have little to no risk, we move into what's known as the cost reimbursement uh, arena. Cost reimbursement type contracts or arrangements, they vary just like firm fixed price arrangements do depending upon what it is you're buying and the amount of risk involved. But they generally have to be cost reimbursement because there is much more risk and there are many more unknowns. How much cost for labor and how much cost for material and cost for overhead all have to be considered in the ultimate pricing of a contract. And the further we move away from firm fixed price, we ultimately end up what is known as a cost straight cost arrangement or cost sharing arrangement. Now in between firm fixed price they range as follows. Firm fixed price, very little risk, to fixed price with EPA, known as economic price adjustment, where we adjust based on cost indices and cost changes with the consumer price index, etc., and a number of other indices. Such things as oil, steel, gold, things that will vary widely. We are willing to make adjustments to the price of a product as adjustments need to be made. Then we move on to the next one, which is fixed price incentive, known as FPI, fixed price incentive. And there, there are targets that have to be met. And if those targets are met, or if those targets are exceeded, then the vendor or the contractor will receive incentive uh, payments in addition to the basic fixed price. Then we also have fixed price contracts that are known as redetermination or fixed price redeterminable contracts where the initial price is ultimately subject to some change based upon cost as they are incurred or prices as they are incurred. Further down the road, we have cost plus incentive fee, known as FPIF, cost plus incentive fee, where we have formulas for uh, cost sharing between the government and private industry. Then we also have cost plus award fee contracts, known as CPAF, cost plus award fee. And there, we're paying a contractor the straight costs that are incurred, as long as they're reasonable, and an award fee out of an award fee pool of money that is established at the early onset of the contract. It is a seldom used kind of contract, but 
Some of us, such as myself, have used CPAF contracts in our careers. Then there's the more ubiquitous type of cost reimbursement contract known as a cost plus fixed fee, where we reimburse vendors and contractors for the cost plus a fixed fee. Could be a 10% fee, an 8% fee, a 15% fee. It depends on the type of service and or product that is being developed. And finally, then there's the cost and cost sharing. And then there's a couple other unique ones that we generally find in private industry, and they are known as a time and materials contract, which is very, very common in the service industry for repair of systems and products and vehicles and tanks and whatever, and also used in the construction and repair industries. Say we're doing a rehab of a house. That would be possibly a time and materials contract. We're paying an hourly rate for the labor amount that is used, and we're paying for the materials that are used. But you'll notice that the one type of element that is missing from a time and materials is there's no profit and there's no fee. So generally that's why we're looking at the other types of contract pricing arrangements that I just mentioned. Then there's something known as a unique letter contract where we give a vendor contractor an initial letter contract. It's kind of like, okay, we haven't yet negotiated a contract, but we want to get started on it. We don't yet know what the real costs are going to be or how we should estimate this, but this is such an important situation that we need you to get working on it. So we're going to give you an initial letter contract, which has a not to exceed amount involved in it. And then finally, we have something that's all too often used in state and local and federal governments, and it's called an IDIQ, an indefinite delivery quantity contract. An IDIQ is an indefinite delivery definite quantity contract. And then we have an IDIQ, which is an indefinite delivery indefinite quantity contract. And we also have something known as a requirements contract. These three different types, the IDIQ, IDDQ and the IDIQ and the requirements contract, well, they're just far too frequent and they're far too problematic for federal government um, agencies. We tend to rely on IDIQ and requirements contracts far more than we should. The reason being, we can order um, small contracts as part of an IDIQ or part of an IDDQ contract or a requirements contract. And in doing so, do it for specific task. A task crops up, we assign an indefinite, we assign a delivery order based on an IDDQ or an IDIQ or a requirements contract. Oh, we have another task, let's assign another task order. And it becomes task order after task order after task order after task order. Now, does that sound to be problematic? It's kind of like if you get a flat tire, fix the flat tire. Oh, I got another flat tire, fix the flat tire. Oh, I keep driving down the same damn road and getting nails in my tire. Let's, let's issue a task order to fix that flat tire. Does that sound stupid to you? Well, it sort of is. Yeah, it'll get the job done, but the problem with requirements contracts where we issue task orders and IDIQs where we issue task orders that most senior procurement executives don't understand. In fact, most program managers do not understand. They're given a pot, a, a pot of money to spend during the year on a contract such as an IDIQ or a requirements contract, and they just issue 
task orders and task orders, and it's like writing checks out of a checkbook. You can only write so many checks, and then you're out of money. Oh, shit. I'm out of money. Oh, shit. I, I issued too many task orders. I exceeded my budget. And the problem with requirements contracts, IDIQs, is for the federal government is, first of all, they don't have enough money to begin with. Secondly, I even though they say IDIQs and requirement contracts are competed, well, I've been around for 30-some years in contracts, and I've rarely ever seen a damn good job of anybody competing a requirements contract. So they get a contract at unit prices and they start issuing task orders and lo and behold before too long they've issued too many damn task orders and they've run out of money oh not a good way at all to run an it department in a federal agency but yet that is what the faa that's what the department of labor that's what the department of transportation and just about every other federal agency does is they rely far too heavily on IDIQs and requirements type contracts when in fact, and I'm going to put this quite bluntly, if they would just get off their fucking ass, negotiate and compete fixed price contracts or fixed price incentives contracts or fixed price award fee contracts, keyword fixed price, where you're trying to stabilize prices and have a controlled budget, they'd be a lot better off. They'd be better off budget-wise. They'd still be able to get damn good prices for the goods or services that they're buying and they'd be able to have those available to them but the problem is procurement managers and senior procurement execs of most federal agencies are just too damn unwilling to take the time of day to methodically plan out in advance what their requirements are going to be for the year and compete them it is the failure of leadership to compete contracts in the federal government and in state government, and in local government that gets them in a bind because they fail to utilize fixed-price contracts, fixed-price EPA, fixed-price incentive contracts, and or just fixed-price contracts with a bonus or an award fee at the end of the contract. Instead, the federal government and the state and local governments tend to use cost-type contracts where we're constantly reimbursing costs and making some kind of incentive or reward fee payment or cost-sharing arrangements. And I can tell you, without a doubt, hands down, having done it hundreds of times for different federal agencies, that cost-type contracts are very difficult to manage as a cost contract administrator. They are very difficult to and time-consuming to close out. We have a requirement by law, by federal law, to close out cost-type contracts in a certain time frame. You can find that out by reading the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulations. Uh, Generally, fixed-price contracts get closed out very easily. When the final price is paid, when all the deliverables are done, we administratively close those contracts out. Wham, bam, boom, thank you, ma'am, and it's over with. And the contract gets filed and goes to the Federal Records Center. Ladies and gentlemen, I have seen cost-type contracts in my tenure at DCMA, Lockheed Martin, and at other federal agencies take 20 to 25 years. I even had a contract that was 35 years old that had not yet been closed out at Lockheed Martin, DCMA, in Orlando. And I was like, well, what the hell do you do when everybody's dead and gone and this contract file is still open? You have to be able to 
close it out. You have to be able to negotiate final rates. You have to be able to validate all the invoices that have ever come in on the contract. It is a monumental task to close out cost-type contracts. It is not difficult at all to close out various forms of fixed-price contracts. So the bottom line with my little talk today is as a former professor of contract management, as an instructor, as a senior executive in contracting, as a senior contracting officer, as a senior procurement official, is that you can do anything you damn well want to do if you just get off your ass, learn as much about the different contract pricing arrangements, learn how to utilize them. To do that, you need to go to school. You need to take classes. You need to actually do OJT, on-the-job training, utilizing. When I first got to my biggest job of all in the Department of Transportation and also in the Department of Labor and at DOD, I thought to myself, how can I distinguish myself? One guy asked me one time uh, on YouTube, he asked me, I'm getting into contracting. What can I do to further my career in contracting? He said, would you please answer me that? So I'm going to answer you now. And if you're listening to this podcast, you will know that this is directed to you. You asked me, how can I further my career as a newbie in contracts? Get off your ass, get as much education as possible in government contracting and commercial contracting. Learn every possible pricing arrangement that there is. Learn how to utilize those pricing arrangements to your advantage, to the advantage of your agency. Learn what distinguishes one contract pricing arrangement over another in a various situation. And if you go into the FAR and or you look at the matrix, there's something you can Google. It's called the matrix of contract types. Let me repeat that. It's called the matrix of contract types. When you look at that matrix, it will tell you what the description of the contract type is, such as firm fixed price, what the basic elements are of that type of contract. It will tell you how and when you should apply that particular type of contract pricing arrangements. And it will finally tell you what the limitations are of that pricing arrangements. And I'm going to give you just as as an example. For example, let's just say we're going to talk about a Fixed price incentive firm, fixed price FPIF, fixed price incentive. A, it has a firm target. The government pays the price that is the sum of the final negotiated cost and final profit. You always have profit in fixed price arrangements. You do not have fees. You have profit. You only have fees and cost type arrangements. And by doing so, uh, it's done by determining, by comparing the final negotiated cost to the original targeted cost and adjusting the targeted profit in accordance with whatever cost-sharing arrangement you have. A cost-sharing arrangement or ratio is like a numerator over a denominator. It's a ratio. It's negotiated between a vendor and the government. And that final price can never, ever, ever exceed what is established at the outset as the ceiling price. In other words, 
you will have a sharing arrangement that up to the ceiling price, that's as far as you can go. That's as much as you can pay out. There are also successive targets at predetermined, say you have a manufacturing plant or a production, you're producing weapon systems or bombs or something. You have predetermined production points with firm target cost is negotiated and the firm target profit is also determined in accordance with your adjustment formula for either an firm fixed price contract or an FPIF contract that can be negotiated. And thus the elements of such a contract pricing arrangement are you have a firm target, which consists of a target cost, a target profit, a ceiling price, and a sharing formula. You also have successive targets, which include the initial target cost, initial target profit, ceiling price, and target profit adjustment formula. Oh my gosh, it sounds pretty complicated, doesn't it? And the application of such would be where the assumption of a degree of cost responsibility by contractors will provide an incentive for them to control cost. In other words, we want to incentivize vendors or contractors to not just be gluttonish in cost, incurring of cost. We want them to have due diligence for controlling cost. And finally, the limitations of this would be the sole purpose cannot be to simply shift cost responsibility to the government. It has to be shared. It requires a simultaneous agreement on all elements of the pricing structure between the parties. So what I'm telling you is, my God, that's a really complex pricing arrangement, and that's fixed price. That's a fixed price incentive contract. So I would therefore assume, actually I know, but I'm telling you, you should assume that if you did a cost plus incentive contract or like a CPIF, cost plus incentive fee contract, it's going to be even more complex than a fixed price one is. So my recommendation is to all of you out there that are brand new newbie buyers, procurement agents, fledgling contracting specialist hoping to be what I would say in the military is a shit-hot contracting officer. Shit-hot means you're damn good. So if you want to be a shit-hot contracting officer, you need to get off your ass, study, study, apply, apply, work, do it, then see what you did wrong because you will screw up. And when you screw up, you must learn from it. You must document what you did wrong. And you do this several times. Yeah, you might incur a couple thousand or a hundred thousand dollars in expense you wouldn't have hoped for. But it's like anything else. It's like building a rocket. You're going to crash some. You need to have the guts. You need to have the wherewithal to test and challenge yourself. You must try to use different pricing arrangements that are applicable during different circumstances. And if you're not willing to do that, you will never, ever be a good contracting officer. You will never be in the best of the best. I was in the best of the best and at the highest levels of government because I challenged myself, I demanded more of myself, I educated myself. By the time I finished my career, I had over 5,000 hours of training, plus many more thousands of hours on the job of testing and doing different types of contracting. I trained other people. I had other people that I mentored. 
if you want to be the best of the best and you want to achieve the highest levels of grade in government contracting, whether it's at the municipal, state, or federal level, I'm quite serious when I say you need to challenge yourself. I saw far too many people pigeonholed and with tunnel vision because they had never done anything other than they had always done for a particular agency. I remember talking, and this is, I'll end it here, I remember talking to a contracting officer at the FAA, and I asked him, well, why is it you want to use this type of contract, you say? And he said, well, that's how we've always done it here at the FAA. And I said, well, you know, the FAA has a pretty damn bad reputation on screwing major multi-million dollar projects up with implementation of radar systems and the new uh, uh, NG system and, and going to 3D. You haven't done a great job. Do you ever stop and think maybe the contract pricing arrangement that you're using is inappropriate for the situation? Are you ever willing to consider that maybe there's a better way of doing things? And his answer to me was, uh, never really thought about that. And I thought to myself, what a jackass this guy is. How stupid can he be to not be willing to challenge himself? Well, I've got other stories I could tell you. I've got a story down the line that I'm going to tell you about a, about a guy who was assigned to me by the senior procurement executive at the FAA. And I, when he came to me, he showed me a pencil. He said, Mr. Nauer, I have never, ever in my life written a section M, meaning M, before. Could you please show me how to do a section M? This guy was a GS-14. And I'm going, Jesus Christ. How the fuck did you get to be a GS-14? You don't even know how to put a contract together. So I went down and talked to the senior procurement exec, and I said, well, after consulting with the head of IT for FAA, you need to get that guy out of our shop because he's a total screw-up. And she was unaware that this guy she was assigning us was a total screw-up. Anyway, that's another story down the line, I'll tell you. much. I have so many experiences with what I refer to as mediocre people. But for those of you out there who really want to be a great contracting officer in the future, to have a great career where you are respected for your knowledge, you have to have knowledge. You have to know. And that means you have to try. And if you're not willing to do that, then you don't need to consider federal contracting or any kind of contracting as a career because you will never be good enough. If you want to be the best, if you want to be respected, then damn it, get off your ass and do the job.